This is episode number sixteen with Ray Porter. Coming up, it's hard when you're there to remember that it is one place, one school, one faculty, and one opinion. And that was when it was right then when I got the sense of it, and it was the only time in my career I've ever felt like actual stage fright. I really had worked it out in my mind. I think it would be just better for everyone if we all just went home. I guess I thought Hollywood would be like, oh, "Look, a white, slightly overweight actor with long hair. Please come in." It's interesting. It's like she cannot be allowed to breed, but he never actually says why. Your job is to hold the mirror up to reality, which means you better have a, as good a grasp on as broad a spectrum of reality as you possibly can if you intend to be effective as an actor. Hey there, my name is Nathan Agin, and this is the Working Actors Journey, bringing you in-depth conversations with actors that have been working professionally for decades. Hope you're doing well out there. We continue season two today, and if you're just joining us, we have a number of fantastic episodes where working actors share where they've been, how they do it, and what they've learned along the way. Actors who have been putting in the work day in, day out, and who have certainly had their ups and downs like everyone else. These conversations are meant to inspire and reassure you on your journey. That you're not alone, you're not crazy, and though the road may be long and challenging, there are rewards ahead. And I really want to help you as an actor out there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything ahead, and visit the website workingactorsjourney.com, where you can get a copy of the guide "Twelve Top Acting Tips from Season One." These are some of the best ideas taken from all the episodes compiled in one place. And it's waiting for you. There's also a link in the episode description. Today on the show is Ray Porter, an actor who spent 18 seasons with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, playing all sorts of roles, including many leads, and has since narrated more than 300 audiobooks while still appearing on film, TV, and on stage. I first got to know Ray while working at the Antius Company in Los Angeles, where we did a staged reading of Shakespeare's Coriolanus together, and then we were both in Noel Coward's Tonight at 8:30. There was quite a bit of downtime in the second production, and it was a great time to chat with a lot of the actors, including Ray. And to me, he's such a hilarious person—super dry and a great sense of humor. I even remember waiting to go on stage in the darkness and quiet behind the curtain, and he would have me cracking up moments before we needed to go out, and it was great. He's also been super approachable and helpful. At the time of that show, I was in rehearsals to play Proteus in Two Gentlemen of Verona, and he was totally willing to help me through a speech that was giving me trouble. It really meant a lot. Along those same lines, this is also a more personal episode since I started narrating audiobooks a few years ago. I am still learning all about it, and I really look up to and admire Ray for his body of work. Not only do I consider him a friend, but I'm very much a fan, and so excited that we could make this chat happen. 
One of the things I really like about Ray is that he has a deep appreciation for the past and history, yet he's also quite irreverent and not overly sentimental. He's also one of the most thoughtful and intelligent people I know. Perhaps it was all that time he had in Ashland, which you'll hear about. I'll tell you that I wanted to use one of my favorite lines from this episode as the title. Ray Porter, stay the fuck out of the author's way. As I think it really encapsulates his approach, and that even gives you a quick sense that Ray cuts right to the chase. Perhaps if Ray ever writes a book of his own, that can be the title. And if Ray's name sounds familiar, you heard him in the Audible ads last season, with an excerpt from Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry, a book that I, and many others, really loved. There are definitely moments when I listen back to this episode and am thinking, wow, he sounds just like his narration— which I believe is absolutely a tribute to how authentically Ray brings himself to his work. So in today's episode, Ray and I cover why you don't want to be a tribute band, making audiobooks that suck and how to get better, an acting approach that gives you freedom, not believing your own PR, technique only up to a point, what Ray believes is the most important thing to do, especially as an actor, and lots more. We even work on a piece of text from The White Devil by John Webster. Post-Shakespeare themes and ideas, very cool stuff, and I'm sure most people are not using this play for their classical monologue. Having great mentors and access to outstanding teachers can make the difference in your career. And that's what this show is hoping to do, to connect you with actors that could change your life and make your acting journey easier and more satisfying. And if you'd like to get exclusive access to additional episodes, bonus content, and items that are available nowhere else, I invite you to become a premium member of the Working Actors Journey, starting at just $2 per month at workingactorsjourney.com slash premium. Just to give you an idea of benefits, I recently sent out an exclusive bonus episode with Robert Pine from episode number one. Members learned more about what he looks for in a script, and also how the current state of business, including with services like Netflix, is affecting the middle-class performer. More great insights into the life of a working actor. And they also got to know before anyone else who today's guest was. So if those kinds of insider scoops and bonus content are up your alley, become a premium member. Again, just $2 per month to get started. Plus, by joining, you're ensuring that this show continues. Consider this the most inexpensive and possibly most valuable acting class you'll ever take. Join now at workingactorsjourney.com slash premium or see the show notes and episode description for a link. So here's a bit more about Ray Porter's journey. He grew up in Indiana and studied at the California Institute of the Arts. Shortly after college, he auditioned for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and stayed with them for 18 years. Outside of OSF, he has appeared at ACT in San Francisco, the Mark Taper Forum, Berkeley Rep, and just last year in Henry IV with Shakespeare Center LA, alongside our past guests, Harry Groner, Jeffrey Wade, and Peter Van Norden. 
and Tom Hanks played Falstaff. Ray's film and TV work includes roles in Modern Family, Shameless, Sons of Anarchy, Monk, Justified, Argo, and Almost Famous. He has narrated multiple best-selling books covering all types of genres, including the Joe Ledger series by Jonathan Mayberry, The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, Silver Linings Playbook, The Idiot's Guide to String Theory, and on and on. I really cannot emphasize enough that Ray has had a major career in audiobooks and is one of the best in the business. He has multiple Earphones Awards and has also been nominated for Audi Awards for his narration. He was even, no surprise if you've heard everything up to now, selected as Audible's Narrator of the Year. And speaking of audiobooks, are you looking for more info from industry insiders and great teachers about being an actor? And do you want this as something you can listen to on the go? Well, you're in luck. As a listener of the Working Actors Journey podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Whether it's one hour or 15 hours, it doesn't matter. Whatever you want, that first item is totally free. To download your audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. Here are a few recommendations for your acting journey. The Actor's Life by Jenna Fisher from The Office, read by the author and others, including our guest, Reed Burney. Secrets of Screen Acting by Patrick Tucker, a TV and film director, read by David Lawrence the Seventeenth. Respect for Acting by Uta Hagen, read by Angel Masters. Get one of these or anything else at workingactorsjourney.com slash audible. I am so thrilled to share this chat with you. Like with many of these guests, Ray has been a mentor of mine, and I feel fortunate to know and have worked with him. This is a great conversation, full of takeaways, and I know you'll enjoy hearing his journey. I'll quickly mention that for the first minute, there was a slight technical glitch, but just hang in there and you'll soon hear the wonderfully resonant tones that many audiobook fans have come to love. So here we go with episode number 16. Please enjoy my chat with Ray Porter. How's your day going so far? It's good. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here behind a stack of audiobooks. Uh, everybody wants to have their books done on the same day, so just trying to get it all done. That's, uh, that's considerate of them. Yeah, and that's really nice. Physics being what it is, I'm going to be disappointing some people. You know, I was, uh, I was watching, have you seen that show, uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, yes. the Seinfeld thing? I, I imagined you would be someone that I knew that, like, could totally appreciate the car side of that show. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah and the comedy. Yeah. Well, well yes, oh, yeah, I, you know. You know, certainly, right, right, right. But, uh, you know, like, because I, I just have no frame of reference or, or really, like, understanding of cars, or certainly the way, like, Seinfeld does. I mean, he clearly, like, knows his yeah. automobiles. But I'm curious, like, where did that interest in cars start for you? Well, I grew up in a small town in Indiana, born in New York City, 
uh, mm-hmm. son of actors, actually. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I'm actually third generation in this business. My grandfather was the publicity advance man for Ringling Brothers for decades. Right. Wow. Um, yeah, my mother was on Broadway and uh, did various things around the country and stuff. You know, I was never going to be an actor. I was, you know, I had to figure out another thing to do and then – was that was that from them or or was that no your own not at all not at all they were always they were always really supportive and really great but uh, I just felt like you know the thing I mean you, you you're a junior in high school and everybody's like are you ready for senior year what are you gonna do now and uh, you know you start thinking geez I you know I I really should do something I mean this is fun and this is great but I obviously need to make a responsible choice and I mm-hmm. should do you know and so I, I I really had planned all that and then went and saw a production of Heartbreak House by okay, George yeah. Bernard Shaw mm-hmm. which actually had Amanda Carlin in it and I didn't know that and I worked with her years later at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival but um yeah I walked out of that play and was like okay I'd like to do this so what was it about – like, had you seen your mom on stage? Like, did you know about – did you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I just, you know, grew up around theater people and all mm-hmm. of that. But I was also in a small town in Indiana that was very car-centric, you know. Okay. And it was yeah. it was the 70s, and so it was, you know, a lot of the older kids on the block, you know, were driving 65 Pontiac GTOs and Mustangs. And, you know, I mean, you just hear that roaring V8 all the time. And – uh, I never was really a big sporto. I was never into, you know, baseball, football, basketball, which is a terrible thing to not be into if you're from Indiana. Uh, it's a little like being an atheist in the Vatican City. Um, <laughs> but I was really into cars. I just, you know, I thought, I just thought they were cool. And it was always, it's always been kind of a passion uh, of mine. Um, and I must say also, there's a great sort of, antithesis to all of the weirdness of being an actor and you know the the roller coaster of emotions just you know trying to keep a career going let alone you know it's 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 a very sort of internal thing it's and and when you're lying under a car adjusting a transmission you aren't thinking about all that internal stuff mm-hmm. and it's really cleansing i think i think it's vital especially if you're an actor to have something else Right. Uh, that can be music. That can be, you know, anything. But it's great if you can do something with your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that will remind us that what we do is ultimately, it's great. It's wonderful. It can sometimes probably be a little bit noble. But I think the biggest downfall of actors is when they start to get very pleased with themselves because they're actors. And anything that will keep you a bit humble is a good thing. Yeah, it's funny. Like I, it wasn't until maybe my late twenties, early thirties that I, I kind of got into cooking. And, right. you know, in, the, in recent years, I've, I've been doing a lot of bread, bread making and bread baking. And there's just something really fun about doing something so tangible. Well, exactly. And you get a result. Exactly. Yes. You know, yeah. Yeah, you can see the fruits of your labor and, and, and it's totally something that like I'm still learning. Like there are times I'm, I mean, luckily it's yeah. bread, so it's never going to be horrible, but like you're still figuring out the process. You're still, you know, it, it like you said, it kind of keeps you humble because you rarely just, yeah. you know, make bread the first time and it's like, Oh, okay. It's perfect. I've mastered that. You know, it's, it's a problem. Well, also, I mean, I think it's a, it's a great attitude for any actor to have, which is that you never stop learning. You will never 
really know. You've got to continue studying. You know, it's stuff like that. It's just what keeps you grounded. Yeah. What is going to cause you to make the simple, not easy, simple, fundamentally human choice in that moment that will cause an audience member to respond, you know? Hmm. So, yeah. So when you were in, you know, Indiana and you're, you're figuring mm-hmm. out, okay, what, you know, what you're going to do for that senior year, you know, did you, you, you know, you, you decided that you wanted to go into acting. So how did Cal Arts get on your radar? Oddly enough, I received a flyer or a brochure <laughs> okay. in the mail and I wasn't even looking at Cal Arts, you know, I was looking at the theater school at the University of Evansville. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was looking at a few other places. Um, and then I get this Cal Arts. And weirdly enough, it happened to coincide with right around the time that my family had decided we were going to move west. Oh, okay. And, uh, I was like, well, I'll be in California anyway. Maybe I should audition. So I drove up to Chicago to the Victory Gardens Theater, and I auditioned uh, for Cal Arts and got in. And um, yeah, that's that's how I ended up there. It was certainly not uh, on my radar before I had applied. Sure. And uh, I I think being you know an eighteen year old kid from Indiana who really didn't have the broadest possible worldview, um, if I'd known more about Cal Arts, I probably would have run away in terror. <laughs> you know, the clothing optional pool and everybody's doing art 24 hours a day. I tell people I didn't go to college. I went to collage. <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was a very sort of extreme place. People really, really living out loud, which was marvelous and great and amazing and really intimidating at first. Do you remember what you used to audition for uh, CalArts? God, no, I don't. Um, okay. I'll tell you this. I didn't, I didn't know shit about how to even properly audition. I really didn't. Um, yeah, somebody had suggested, you know, I think there's this book by a guy named Michael Shirtleff called yep. Audition, you right. know, that's all about that. Okay. And, and it, it can be really, I mean, it can be really handy, but I was so ignorant that I didn't even really, you know, grasp that. I knew. Nothing. I knew, I, I, I knew how to act. I had been in several plays and I had mm-hmm. done all of that stuff, but I just, I had, I had about two colors on the palette and very little knowledge. Um, thank God, uh, Libby Apple was the dean of the School of Theater and later, uh, went on to be the artistic director at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, oddly enough. Oh, okay. Um, you know, but thank God she saw something. Uh, right. through all of the ham fisted attempts and did, uh, admit me to the school. And, uh, so that was great. And, and being such, uh, an extreme and kind of experimental program, I guess, in, in certain ways, did you feel like it was the right fit for you at that time? Yeah, I did. You know, it's, it's interesting. Cal Arts definitely has a reputation for being extreme, but this is, this is back in the day when, you know, it wasn't that extreme, mm-hmm. you know, we were doing shepherd, mammoth, um, right. you know, things like that. I mean, yes, the training was very, very intensive, um, but there wasn't, you know, I'm strolling around naked with various parts of me wrapped in bacon, you know, <laughs> speaking French poetry while playing a lute, you know, over death metal. I mean, that was right. not happening. I mean, it definitely happened on campus. 
I wasn't involved in those projects. Right. Um, but you know, there was, it was just, it, it was more a sort of reckless hunger for the work. Mm. And because it was such a, it wasn't non-structured, but there was enough freedom around what the structure was that you could very easily overbook yourself. And I recall <laughs> starting, starting the school week on Monday, having had two hours of sleep that entire weekend because all I was doing was plays and student films. Wow. And I had booked everything back to back to back so that I could do it all. You know, because you don't need to eat or sleep. I mean, come on, it's college. Well, I mean, you know, it brings up an interesting point because that's something that so many actors struggle with is, is saying no to things or, or figuring out how not to stretch yourself too thin. Oh, God, do you, yes. Do you feel like that experience gave you an insight that you were able to use or like you still struggle with like saying no or overbooking things? I think every actor who struggles with saying no. Yeah. There's that great fear of if I say no, I'll never work again. Right. If you think there's any justification to that fear, take yourself to Vegas and watch the old ladies who sit all day long in front of the nickel slots and watch them struggle to walk away from the slot machines. Uh, you know, this next time might be my chance. It becomes an addiction and it actually will reduce your quality of life. And something I learned later in my career about the only time you're truly in charge of your career is when you do say no to things. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean just start saying no right and left and be difficult and be a pain in the ass or anything. But uh, if you can make an honest assessment of yourself when faced with a project or faced with an audition and, you know, I'm going to pass on this. I, I This is not this is not for me then you do actually have your hands on the wheel of your career because otherwise in a way your career is kind of happening to you. Right. And I'd, I'd much rather drive than be a passenger. Sure. Going back to your cars, you know, cars yeah, reference. Of course, of course. It's much more fun to drive than it is to uh, ride. Well, I also know with CalArts, they, they typically, and, and I don't know if they were still doing it or they were doing this at the time, but they would uh, kind of cut uh, classes down. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. How did that process affect you? Well, I was, that was one of the scariest things in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't, <laughs> I put myself through school and it wasn't cheap even back yeah. then. Yeah. And I had committed a great deal, including, you know, my health. I, I, I wasn't eating much because I had no money. I wasn't sleeping much because all I wanted to do was act and, you know, all of a sudden, two years in, after this huge investment of self, um, you could be told, you know, great job for these last two years. We don't see you continuing to graduation, so we're going to let you go. And it was horrific. It was terribly traumatic for a lot of people. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was awful. And, you know, it happened every year. And so every year you knew, you know, um, we, we, we called it shark week because it, you know, people started getting real nasty mm. before the, uh, before the cuts came out, they called them mid residence reviews, which was, you know, a nice way of, I mean, it's basically, you know, let's, let's put an awning on the abattoir, try to make right. it homier. It was, it was horrible. And I still, I often, I often think about that, how many truly great actors 
for whatever reason, were let go from the program at CalArts and stopped acting and just right. quit right. and put it down and never looked back at it. And what a loss for the rest of us. It's hard when you're there to remember that it is one place, one school, one faculty, and one opinion. And I always wondered about those people, you know, like, did they continue? Were they able to? Uh, and I, I was so scared. I was sweating it so hard. It feels like it would have really disrupted any kind of camaraderie or cohesion that, you know, programs like that tend to develop. Yeah. I mean, it sort of did. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're dealing with people who are in college in an acting program at an art school. It's high drama anyway. Sure. Uh, you know, and then you just throw this into the mix and it kind of gives a name to the crazy. But, um, yeah, it was hard. You know, people were definitely feeling the pressure. I, it was traumatic for everybody, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I understand why they did it. Um, but yeah, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, like anything, there's people you love and maybe they don't get a job. I mean, I dealt with the same thing in Ashland year to year. I was there for 18 seasons and there would be people that I absolutely adored and thought were amazingly talented and they weren't offered a season. And hmm. so suddenly they're, you know, they're still in your life. I mean, phone calls and that sort of thing, but they're not. They're not on the train. They're not, they're not, you know, doing it every single day. And, and it takes a hit. I mean, you certainly figure out who your real friends are where it's not necessary that you work in the same place. Right. But it's tough. Right. Sure. Yeah. Oh, it's sure. very hard. Yeah. And, and I can only imagine, uh, there is just such a degree of luck, uh, you know, in terms of your, you specifically, you know, but, uh, anyone's, look or uh kind of energy or whatever it is that can just kind of sure. fit right in a program which may save you from the chopping block right i mean the deal you know the deal with that is uh there's really only one person on this entire planet who is your advocate as an actor and who actually believes in you and whose opinion matters and it's your own everything else is subjective you know, so you didn't get that job at that theater and you really, really, really wanted it, but you didn't get it. Well, that was their opinion. I mean, it can, you know, in Hollywood, it can come down to whether the casting director had lunch yet. Right. You know, and to me, one of the, the hardest tasks as an actor is learning to turn off all of that shit going into an audition. You go in, you do your best, you have a great time, maybe push the outside of the envelope a little bit. The audition is over and you leave and you do not review it in your mind in the car. You don't do the shoulda, woulda, couldas on your drive back home. You know, you don't sit hanging, waiting for the phone to ring, you know. Um, and if you don't do that, it kind of lessens the uh, blow when you hear no. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know whether it's luck or you know, there's just so much randomness and so much entropy in, in what we do. Right. And you can, you can prepare the hell out of something and it really is just all kind of arbitrary. But I veer away from luck just a little bit. That, that makes it something kind of, 
I don't know, magical and unquantifiable and, Mm -hmm. you know, and again, like something that happens to you. I got lucky. You know, I hit the slot machine. Right. No, I did my absolute best and it didn't work out today. Or I did my absolute best and I got the job. And now's when the real stuff starts where you've got to actually fucking deliver. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people audition well. Can you, can you carry it all the way through? Yeah. I, I, you know, I hear what you're saying. I, I mean, I, I would imagine maybe, you know, just opportunity might be a better way for me to, to, to phrase it. Yes. That, you know, it's just sometimes you get the opportunity and sometimes you don't. And, you know, that's exactly right. It's, it's not, it's, it's usually not personal. Uh, you know, why you, why you weren't given no. that. No. Hard to like not feel that way though. Of course. Yeah. You know. So you get through um, CalArts, you, you, you stick around yes. for all four years, you graduate, and yes. then I know you ended up uh, at Oregon Shakespeare Festival pretty, pretty soon after college, right? Pretty soon after, yeah. I, I, was, I was in L.A., and, you know, my career was larval. I had had meetings with a few casting directors and that sort of thing, and things seemed to be uh, optimistic, you know? And I auditioned for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and I got an offer, and it was about nine months after I graduated. And I told everybody here in L.A., it was a six-month contract. I was going to go do it because it was a great offer of solid work, and I had just graduated, you know. I'd struggled through college to to do it. I I should take this because mm-hmm. at least it'll validate what I've done for the last, you know, whatever. I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea. Uh, got up there and it was amazing. I told everybody I'd be back in six months. That was in 1990. And my last season in Ashland, I left by my choice was, uh, 2008. Wow. I know you came in with a new artistic director and it was only, I believe, their third in their history at that time. I, no, actually, I came in with the second artistic director. Oh, the second. I, okay. I, when I went to work there, it was Jerry Turner. Okay. who had taken the reins from Angus Bomer, who was the first guy. Okay. Oh, um, okay. And yeah. And then I was there when it changed over to Henry Warrenitz. And right. I was there when it changed over to Libby Apple. And I had just gotten married. And I told Libby that I thought it'd be a good idea for me to be a husband rather than a phone bill. So I was going to go away. And then Bill Rausch contacted me because he was going to do his first season as artistic director and wanted me there. And I agreed. And then that was the, that was the last season I did there. And then in between in the off season, I would come down and do TV and film sure. stuff like that. Okay. So you came in with the second artistic director, but then there were, you know, there were two kind of back to back younger artistic directors. Do you think that helped your trajectory having, you know, younger folks at the helm of that festival? Do you think it mattered or, or they saw you? No. That's hard because I have to say Jerry Turner was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. One of the smartest people I've ever known. And, you know, every artistic director had their great strengths and oftentimes they were very different. And yeah, they would see you different. I mean, in a weird way, it was kind of like you're auditioning for a new theater again or you're going mm-hmm. to work at a new theater again because it's a new artistic director. It's a new vision and they're actually really taking a look at things. And, right. Uh, and it's transition and it's change and, and a place like that, that's such a weird phenomena. You're working steadily for at the very least six months and typically you're there for 10 and it kind of becomes all the world. 
because there's not much else to do. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that leads me to another question. Cause I remember I, I believe I only auditioned once for the festival, just in terms of, you know, the timing for me, it, it only happened once. And, and I remember that was one of my questions of right. how I would not go crazy being in one place doing, you know, four or five shows, the same yeah. shows for 10 months. And, and yeah, I'm curious, like how you 120 kept- <laughs> of the show, right? Um, well, I became a much better guitar player. Okay. I became much more well-read. I taught myself astronomy. Wow. I learned how to do a lot of things that I'd always wanted to learn how to do and never really had the time. Yeah. Like anything, you can either use the time or, or not, you know, and, and I decided, well, hell, you know, I've got all of this time between shows. Let's do this. Sure. So I did. And I know uh, pretty early in your career at OSF, you did Labette in 92. Yeah, that was with Henry Warrenitz. Okay. And yeah. you were playing Valer, correct? Yes, I was. And he's the one with the yeah. 20, 25 minute monologue and 20. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. All and in iambic pentameter and rhymed couplets. Yes. So, you know, to get that role pretty early in your time there, do you feel like you had proved yourself or, or, you know, cause you were, you know, still kind of young in the festival or no, I was still, I was still very young in the festival and that, you know, that definitely was down to having a new artistic director who was taking a new look at things. I was doing a show and Henry came down and he was the new artistic director and he said, Hey, come here and talk to me for a minute. And I'm like, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I, I don't know what I would have done, but you know, anyway, right. And he said, we're doing this play next year. It's this new play and I need a killer comic actor. And, you know, obviously keep this a secret, but I'd like you to read for it. Okay. So I prepared a five minute chunk of that 22 minute speech mm. and I would sort of get there to where I felt it was workable and then I would push it even further for myself. Uh, you know, I talked about pushing the envelope, like right. push the boundaries. Uh, let me get myself good and uncomfortable. Like, oh my God, there's no way they're going to possibly go along with this. Okay. Do that. Uh, I had a very, very dear friend who's one of the most brilliant actors I've ever known, a guy named Jonathan Hogan, who, uh, was kind of a cheerleader all along for that. And I remember him writing me this in big block letters in pencil on a piece of paper before the audition. He just wrote, scare yourself. Hmm. Wow. So I went in, I went in and I scared myself and I got the gig. And it kind of put me on the map. Yeah. I, well, I mean, two questions. When Henry asked you the question, uh, do you feel like you were that killer comic actor that you're like, oh, yeah, I, I know what I'm doing when it comes to comedy? Like, uh, did you have that confidence? Oh, God, no, no. I, I, I was more like, oh, wow. He, he thinks I'm funny. He, he cool. <laughs> you know, cause I, no, I mean, I've never been one of those actors who's like, oh, yes, no, I understand this. Eh, right, come on. Right, right, right. So mostly I was just like, oh, he saw that. Mm. Oh, cool. I mean, I've always felt very, um, competent mm -hmm. with, with comedy. But, you know, I mean, especially when you're new, you know, and the artistic director comes in and he says, I need a killer comic actor and I'd like you to read for it. It's like a huge boost. Right. 
Um, you know, oh, he, wow, cool. He thinks I could maybe do this. Oh, shit. Now I've got to actually act like I belong, you know, and that was when the real work started. Right, exactly. So to borrow that word, scared, once you got the role, were you intimidated of the part or terrified? Yeah, you know, initially through the rehearsal process, it was just about tackling the work because, I mean, aside from the fact that the role begins with a 22-minute monologue, the entire play is in iambic pentameter and rhymed couplets. Yeah. Meaning if six people are speaking on stage, it mathematically breaks down. It still comes out to be an iambic rhymed couplet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The technique required, you know, it's pretty rigorous. And it was also a physically challenging show. It's not like I was doing big slapstick stuff, but, you know, it was it was challenging on every level. And so – I really just put my head down and, and, and worked and an amazing ensemble people that I definitely, you know, there were actors in the room that I was like, Oh shit, I really better prove myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this guy, this guy's a veteran. This guy's amazing. And I'm damn, I'm playing in the same band as him. Whoa. You know? Um, so I never really thought about it until opening night. And I'm <laughs> the play starts and I'm standing behind the door that I'm supposed to come through. And I, I literally would open the door, start talking and not stop for 22 minutes. Wow. And that was when it was right then when I got the sense of it. And it was the only time in my career I've ever felt like actual stage fright where I was I really had worked it out in my mind. I think it would be just better for everyone if we all just went home. <laughs> I will, I will tell the stage manager that I can't do this. I will apologize to everybody necessary. Um, we can reopen the show, you know, with a different actor. It's going to be, it's just going to be beneficial for everybody because I have absolutely no, oh shit, there's my cue. Open the door and just go. Wow. Yeah. It was the only time I was ever scared. Um, but it worked. I I got through it and um, got a standing O after the monologue. That was cool. Yeah. Um, and then it was just, uh, you know, go. And the thing that I recall is being told by a lot of actors, this is the role of a lifetime. And I remember instantly thinking to myself, um, no, <laughs> no. This is not the role of my lifetime. If it is, my career is over now. I've peaked. Fuck it. I'm going to just stop acting. Right. You know, it's a role. It's a really challenging one, and I'm going to do my best with it. But but role of a lifetime? Shit, I hope not. I'm in my 20s. Yeah. I got a lot of stuff left to do, you know? You mentioned a colleague, Jonathan Hogan, who gave you the piece of advice of scaring yourself. And, and I'm curious, for yourself, who worked at the festival for 18 years – you know, there's that idea of like, what do you feel like you learned from the veterans when you came in? And w- was there oh, anything God. that you wanted to or hoped you were passing down towards the end of your tenure there? You know, it's funny. I always kind of look at myself as like a plumber or something. I never think about like handing something down to posterity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I never thought about myself in those terms. But my God, I mean, my first season, I just to sit at the table with uh, Rex Raybold playing Leontes in Winter's Tale or, or Jim Edmondson, you know, or these, these amazing, you know, just to sit at the table and be blown away by what they're doing. Um, I think 
the biggest takeaway for me was the simplicity of an approach to the text. I mean, obviously there's, you know, technique things that have to be handled, but I don't know. It's, it's tough. It's like knowing you want to push yourself. You want to do all the extremes, but you've also got to know when it's enough. Right. You also got to, you got to know when to just set it down and walk away from it. And, uh, watching these people with such skill with text and it was also effortless. The greatest thing that I would want anybody to say about, you know, my approach with classical theater is, you know, there's a lot of people who sound really, really good when they're doing Shakespeare and they're great actors and they sound terrific. They're able to do it with great skill. And then there are people who just get up and tell the truth and they just happen to be using Shakespeare's words. Mm. I would prefer to be in the second category because one thing I did find out, I can scientifically prove this. When you do that, when you're doing classical theater, uh, modern audiences have no trouble understanding the words you're saying. Yeah, it's unfamiliar sounds. It's weird word placement. It's, you know, strange stuff like that. But you're just telling the truth. The audience will get it and they may not even necessarily know why. Mm. But people who really sound amazing, you know, for some reason, I think it kind of disconnects an audience and they start looking at the text going, wait a minute, what did he say? And they end up not understanding it because it's unfamiliar and they get bored. Right, right. Which gives Shakespeare a really bad rap. Sure. It's funny. You and I were talking previously, and we'll talk more about audiobook stuff in a, in a second here. But, yeah, you know, there's that there can be that idea, whether it's with Shakespeare or other classical texts or even narrating, that there's a there's a sound you need to get to or that you need to be able to produce if you're going to do these things. You just need to be able to be heard. <laughs> And you've got to be able to make, you've got to make yourself heard and you've got to be able to do it 120 times. Right. So whatever that means to you, whether it's vocal warm ups or whether it's maybe not making the choice to go on your throat and scream blood out in this one moment, you know, because you're going to have to do it again tomorrow and for the next few months. Technique wise, you just got to be heard. Sure. Don't sing it. Jesus. There's opera for that. Right. Well, okay, so let's let's jump to uh, 94 when you did uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And that yeah. was that was outside of o, uh, the o, OSF. That right? was at ACT. Yeah, that was at ACT in San Francisco. Richard Side was the director. And so how did that come about? I was playing Dogberry in Much Ado About Nothing. Uh-huh, okay. And on the night of a friend's birthday, instead of going out the stage door like I normally did, I took the door closest to the bar uh, and left that way and was there with my friend celebrating his birthday. And this English guy walks up to the table and sits down and, you know, a mutual friend introduces us. And he said, I was waiting for you. I wanted to talk to you. I was waiting for you by the stage door. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I, I was, um, you know, I went, I came to my friend's birthday, whatever, you know, it's nice to meet you. You know, who are you? What do you do? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm directing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead at ACT. And, you know, I'm looking for a really good Rosencrantz. And based on what I saw tonight, I'd like to offer you the job. Holy cow. <laughs> and I said, I was like, well, uh, just like that. Uh, um, he goes, yeah. And I said, will you take care of my housing? And he looked offended. He's like, of course. I was like, fine, then let's do this. So I did it. And I got to work with really incredible people, really brilliant actors. 
And uh, we built that show and it was great fun. Do you feel like that stretched and challenged you in like it was a good change of kind of scenery in terms of, you know, going outside of the festival? Oh, it was great. Yeah, it was great to work at another theater and with different people and be uh, to live in San Francisco, yeah. you know, and and oh, yeah, it was it was marvelous. It was marvelous. I loved I loved doing that show. The people were incredible and yeah, it was a great experience. And was, I mean, was that not, not was it often that, you know, you would just get offers, you know, while hanging out at the bar, but were you I wish it happened like that. <laughs> yeah. Were you <laughs> That would be easy. Were you looking for other work outside of the festival while you were there, certainly in the earlier years? No, not really. Yeah. I mean, I would, you know, when I, like I said in the off season, which was 2 or 3 sometimes six months out of the year, typically I would come down to LA and I would go out and, you know, was just kind of getting started doing little things on TV and stuff like that, you know, but I wasn't actively looking for work at other theaters. Why would I, you know, I've got right. my apartment in Ashland. It's beautiful there. You can drink the tap water. <laughs> um, you know, I'm working all day long. And honestly too, I'd have to say by the end of, by the end of the season, <laughs> After having been in, you know, three plays and for the last 10 months, you know, in rep, the last thing I wanted to do was <laughs> a play. <laughs> uh, I needed a break. I just needed a break. I mean, physically, you know, you know the deal. You've been around enough. You know, you can spot a theater actor immediately, right. typically by the scars on their legs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I had knee surgery when I was doing this. Show. Oh, yeah. No, I right. I tore my Achilles, you know, da-da-da-da-da. It's like, uh, yeah, you're a theater actor. You've got the scars to prove it. Right. Uh, it's physically demanding. It's hard. And um so, yeah, I mean, at the end of the, I mean, I certainly wasn't like, oh, great. I got to go work at Seattle rep. I mean, I wanted to, sure. I absolutely did. But honestly, at the end of the season, I needed, I needed to reset. I needed yeah. to reboot. Well, and, and you meant, you know, you not only like the physically demanding work, I mean, it, it is just so emotionally and mentally taxing. And it's kind of amazing when you see sure. which actors, you know, if you track them through the season, what they're doing. There was, yes. there was one season I, I, I saw where you were playing both Antiphali in uh, oh, God, Comedy yes. of Errors. So yeah. there was a country bumpkin and then like a mafioso guy. Yeah. Then you were also playing right. Kent in King Lear. Correct. And you had a part in Henry the Sixth. Yeah, I played Edward, Edward in uh, Henry the Sixth. I lost uh, 30 pounds that season. Oh my God. I, I just like, <laughs> I don't know yeah. how, I, I mean, just, you know, I, I'm sure at a certain point, your body and your mind gets to a place where you're not on autopilot, but you're comfortable with everything. But going right into that season, were you just at a loss for what, how am I going to even do this? How am I going to memorize all this? How am I going to, you know, honestly, at that point, I was just stoked. Wow. I was stoked at the challenge. I was excited about, you know, doing it. And I had always wanted to play Kent. And so I was really excited about doing that, especially with Ken Albers playing Lear. That was a dream role of mine. Mm -hmm. So I was just excited. Yeah, it was a few months in when I went, oh, this is a lot, you know, <laughs> but then you just put your head down and you do the work right. and um, got to the end of it and uh, was fine and realized I'd really sort of accomplished something. And that was great. That was really fun. Uh, but, yeah, that was a big season. Well, you know, you mentioned Kent was a role you always wanted to play and you were you were doing yes. Tifoli and 
you know, it also brings up the question, like, I think for some actors, it can be intimidating doing these parts that either we've seen other people do or we know are really challenging or quote unquote iconic. And, you know, how do you kind of wrestle with just doing your thing or, you know, just trying to tell the truth and, and let get that other stuff out of the way? I think there's a certain kind of good nature to arrogance that you have to employ with that sort of thing. This may be the 1,000th time someone has seen Bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream, but it's the very first time that they've ever seen me do Bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm-hmm. I purposefully ignore um, a lot. I mean, I know I know some actors, and it's very helpful for them, and, you know, Godspeed, that's great. Whatever gets you there gets you there, but – uh, I knew some actors that, you know, they would, in preparing for a role, they would look to see what other actors did with it, other actors that they admired, which I think is fine, but I don't want to be doing Anthony Hopkins' version of Titus Andronicus. I want to do Titus Andronicus. Right. So for me, it was very difficult to do that. I mean, I would look at somebody and, you know, and that would imprint on me. And whether I wanted to or not, I'd end up doing it sort of like them. And where's the fun in that? Then you're a cover band, you know, a tribute act. Yes. Yeah. You know, for for everyone that didn't get to see uh, uh, this actor do it live. Now you can come see me do my my version of that. Right. Exactly. God, if you if you close your eyes, it sounds just like Led Zeppelin. Well, that's (laughs) great, but it's not. Led Zeppelin, is it? Right. Anyway. So, yeah, you just have to be like, okay, this is mine. This is the first time this has been done. Here we go. Yeah. Because for somebody in the audience, it's the first time they've ever heard those words. So what a fun thing, you know? Right. It's new for everyone. But I remember, I remember there were certain people, there were, you know, certainly older, uh, audience members that would sometimes take issue with the direction of a show or the look of a show or sometimes even, you know, what we did with certain roles and things. I remember a guy once uh, raising his hand and saying, you know, I like my Shakespeare like I like my Thanksgiving dinner. You always know what you're going to get. <laughs> um, wow. Cool. That's great. I so love working in a museum. Um <laughs> You know, it's very difficult to sort of gently explain that you're not in the business of preserving, you know, Paul Robeson's version of Othello from years ago. You're doing the play. Uh, It can be a little bit tough at times, especially, you know, roles like that, because there's baggage. Sure. Right. There's there's expectations that people have about what it'll be. Right. But I mean, you know, it's, it's a game I play with myself like I do with auditions where, yes, I did say I play with myself. Don't do that. 12 years old. It's a game that I play like I do with auditions where it's like, okay, I'm going to go in. I'm going to do it. And then I'm not going to think about it again. And I'm not going to like think about things I should have done in the car. Okay. Boom. Done. Okay. I'm about to play Hamlet. Everybody in the world has played Hamlet. I'm not going to think about them. I'm going to act like this is a new work and I'm the first person to play it. Right. So earlier you mentioned that you left OSF on your terms in 2008. And why did you feel it was time to leave? A couple of reasons. I mean, I had been there for a very, very long time, first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's still roles I'd like to do. There's still parts I'd like to do. Um, but the main reason, honestly, it wasn't so much about leaving the theater as it was I was newly married. I needed to be a husband. I needed to attend 
to that important relationship in my life mm-hmm. and to choose the theater over my life didn't seem sustainable. Right. Yeah. Cause it's a very, it's a very demanding, um, or certainly the OSF schedule is a very demanding schedule. Um, you know, it you is. Have time, you have time for hobbies and, and, you know, how to learn, you know, yeah. you're saying guitar or, or astronomy or things like that, but, uh, it's, it asks a lot of you. And so you have to, I think you have to be in the right oh, yeah. kind of place or relationship. And if you're doing a long distance relationship with that, have a great time. <laughs> it's wow. challenging. It's yeah. challenging as hell. But you know, it's, it's true for anybody, you know, working in the theater. It's like this month I'm in Chicago and then I finished this run and I've immediately got a job in Dallas. Right. And I, da, 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 you know, um, and I know early on, you you know, you sort of have it drummed into you of like, you know, take the opportunities, grab them. They may not come around again. You've got to really do that. But at some point, uh, are you going to have a life? Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you'd like to be married, are you going to do that and actually be a part of the relationship? Right. And I that was what I said to Libby when I when I left. I feel like I'd rather be a husband than a phone bill. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's what I did. Well, and, and and I know, you know, certainly when you left OSF, your, your audiobook career, you know, was, was definitely starting to take off. So were you looking for a new challenge? Well, okay. What happened was, you know, I left, I left the theater and I was in LA for about a year being a husband and uh, driving my then wife insane because I wasn't working as much as I was accustomed to working. You know, I told people I felt a little like, you know, Morgan Freeman's character at the end of Shawshank Redemption. I'm like, what do I do with this? I'm institutionalized. Right, right. You know, one o'clock every day, I should be getting ready for a show. And I was geared to that because I'd had a steady diet of it for the last almost two decades. And so I arrive in Los Angeles, you know, I mean, I don't know what I was expecting. I guess I thought Hollywood would be like, look. A white, slightly overweight actor with long hair. Please come in. You know, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I certainly wasn't working as often or as intensely as I was accustomed. And mm-hmm. I was going stir crazy. And I knew about Blackstone Publishing, which is an audiobook publisher in Ashland. And I submitted oh, okay. an audition to them. And they thought it was good enough to give me a book. And so I, I, I did a book for them and it did pretty well. So they sent me another one and that book did pretty well. And, you know, it was just kind of a snowball effect. And in many ways, it's been terrific. Uh, my former, uh, spouse is a costume designer and works very, very crazy hours. We have a son who's 11 now. It was great for me because, you know, doing audiobooks largely working from home, I was able to, do breakfast and do the school run and do all of that stuff. And there, you know, there was no need for some, you know, nanny or something. Right. Well, you know, in terms of the, in terms of the work, I mean, you know, and and I've done, you know, a handful of audiobooks myself, but you know, there's, it's definitely a different style and it's its own thing. So how, how did you kind of start, you know, in terms of either what we were saying earlier, what you thought audiobooks should sound like, how did you find your style narrating that took a while i uh i did a few audiobooks and then i then i really started listening to other narrators and i went oh this is what you're supposed to sound like this is what i should do so i did a book like that and it sucked (laughs) 
And uh, I actually had a fellow who was very, very helpful with my career in audiobooks say to me, you know, um, you don't have to do it this way. You can, you know, do it your own way and just see how that does. And so I tried that with the next book and it worked great. And that's when I realized, oh, yeah, that's right. Shakespeare, books, whatever, all of it is an approach to the text. How right. do you approach the text in the most effective way? Uh, I've made this analogy a couple of times before, but I feel very strongly about it. I never call myself an artist uh, because I don't create something out of nothing. What I'd like to think of myself at best is a um, I'm kind of like a mailman. You know, if your mailman comes to the door and knocks on the door and you open it, your mailman's holding your mail and they're going through it and opening it and saying, oh, this is from so-and-so and here's what you should feel about this letter from this person and here's what you should do about this and, you know, you don't need this right here. But, you, well, that would make me a bad, potentially psychotic mailman. My job is to simply – Bring the things that have been written to you, drop them in the box, and walk the fuck away. I think the same is true with regard to the text. Shakespeare wrote a letter to you. Any playwright, any author, has written you, specifically you, a letter. So I get to read it to you. The importance is not what I'm trying to say to you. The importance is what the author is trying to say to you. If your mother writes you a long letter, do you really want to hear what I'm saying or are you listening to your mother? Right. And I think the same should be, I think that for me anyway, that's my approach to the text. Shakespeare wrote you a note. If I deliver the mail as efficiently and cleanly as possible, I don't fold, spindle, or mutilate, I just put it in the box and you get it, then I've done my job. And the same is true with books. Stay the fuck out of the way of the author. Yeah, it's this idea of what you're saying, communicating the story and not commandeering it. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, I don't want I don't want somebody walking. I mean, I, I'm grateful that somebody thinks I did a good job with something. I, of course I am. That's that's amazing. That's, I mean, I certainly didn't get applause when I was roofing. <laughs> I think that's marvelous. And I'm constantly humbled by that. And I feel a great sense of responsibility when somebody takes time out of their day to say that I did a good job with something. But that's not the goal. The goal is for you to get good value for money. You paid your ticket or you downloaded that book or whatever, and you want to hear that piece of text. Right. Right. You well, know? Yes, and I'll say there are people that if you read reviews for books you've done, they go crazy for your narration. I mean, like... And I'm very grateful for that. I mean, there are people that say, you know, the book is good, but Ray's the reason I loved it so much. Um, <laughs> well... Well, and so I'm just, I'm just curious, do you think your audio work is some of your best work that you've ever done? I... Mm. There's books that I've done that I have been proud to have been a part of them. Yeah. I, I've been proud to have read them. Um, there's, there's authors that I never would have read if I was choosing the book on my own, you know, and, and I adore them. There's actually some authors who are, who I'm now lucky enough to say are friends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really, really, really grateful 
whenever I read an online review, you know, on Audible or whatever, and these people say such wonderful things. And sure. I always try to throw it back to the author and that may be, I don't know, maybe like annoying false humility or something, or, or maybe I need to spend some serious time with the therapist, but I try really hard not to believe my own PR because that'll put me in a bad place. I've tried it before and it hasn't served me well. Right. That's just me. So what I am is very grateful. And whenever I read a really, really good review, I am humbled by that in, in the way that it makes me think, okay, the next one that I do that this person listens to has to be as good or better than what right. they've just heard. That's my responsibility to them. Well, I'll tell you that personally, you know, I, I've, I've done more kind of, uh, nonfiction audio books and, and that seems to work for me. And, but I'll, I'll tell you, if I, if I think about doing fiction stuff, you have set a very high bar. Uh, and, and then I, and I say that in a, in a good way, you know, that, but I mean, there is certainly a little bit of an intimidation when you hear books read by yourself or some of the other great narrators. It's just like, it's so amazing to, for me, to hear one person and forget that it's one person doing all the voices or all the characters. That's, yeah, that's that. Well, you know, and that's a choice. There's other narrators who don't do really much with character voices and they're great narrators as well. Right. Um, you know, they deliver the mail that way and it works and it's really effective for them. But I, I credit, I mean, the whole reason why I have a career in audiobooks at all is because of a guy named Grover Gardner, very prolific narrator, also a director, has produced books, done all that stuff and is, I mean, you know, it's like talking to Gandalf about <laughs> audiobooks. I mean, this guy knows it all. And when I did the book where I, did what I thought I should sound like and it sucked. And he called me and in his very, very gentle way said, don't put so much spin on it. Just do it. Do, you know, do what you feel is right. And let's see if that works. Hmm. And I got off the phone and thought, well, shit, I'm never going to work again. <laughs> and so I did the book the way that I felt it should be done. And, uh, and it, lo and behold, it did well, you know, and it was right. great advice. Right. So when I come to it now, you know this, reading a book, every author kind of has a voice, you know, the way they write. There's a certain tone or voice to the, to the text. And for me, it's just about kind of finding that. And yes, I do endeavor to do different dialects, different sounds, different voices. That's just, you know, like a technical thing. But I also know a lot of narrators who don't and they're doing real well too. Sure. But it's about, it's, it, Maybe the reason why I take this approach with, uh, you know, like the, the comparison with a mailman and, you know, and all of this stuff about like, you know, it's not me, it's the author and all of that is because if I do that, it allows me a great deal of freedom mm. to share the text. I've never really thought about it that way, but I, I think in thinking like that, it gives me a certain sense of like, just go for it. Just do it. Just. You know, fucking turn the amp up real loud and play. Well, and, it's, and it sounds like that would be advice for, you know, either me, if I wanted to do, you know, fiction audiobooks or anyone, just, just, just start, just do it. Just, you know, have fun with it. Yeah. Don't think about how you sound. Don't think about, you know, uh, just 
Or like how how would Ray do this, or how would Ray sound, or you know Ray's don't, so good yeah, I can't. For you know. God's sakes, don't do that. No, that's that way madness lies. Jesus, you don't want my life, dude. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, you know, you have something so unique about you. It's like your fingerprint. There is something that when you just let go, if you just don't try to put any spin on it, don't try to think about what it should be. If you just fucking do it. There's nothing that can touch it because there's nothing else that's like you. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if if I were to presume to advise, and I'm not, but if you have an audiobook to do, try driving with only one hand on the wheel. Does that make sense? It, it does. I want you to. I want you to elaborate just so that I make sure I, I understand what you're saying. Is it? Is it? Does it go back to scaring yourself? Maybe. Maybe uh, there there certainly is a certain amount of fear when you walk out, you know, when you when you're like, OK, I'm just going to do this. I'm scared because I don't really have full control over everything. Right. There's a lot of variables, but that's what's exciting. That's when it that's when it gets, you know, interesting. I'm a very organic actor. There's a lot of actors who are very, very uh skilled with uh, technique and all of that. And they're able to arrive at the same place and oftentimes way better than what I can do doing what they do. So you got to find your thing. You have to find the way you play. But I would think just as an experiment, if nothing else, just tell the damn story. Right. You know, don't think about it. Don't think about performing it. And I guess what I mean by drive with one hand on the wheel Try this sometime. Don't, don't do it on the freeway. Do it when you're going slow. But if you're in your car, think back to the, to the stuff you were told in driver's ed when you were in school, you know, and really focus on my hand is at 10 and two and really focus on whatever you remember from driver's ed. And I guarantee you, you're going to drive worse. Mm. The thing about driving is that it becomes. It's not automatic at all, but you relax. You're able to let go. I mean, you can get in the car. You can drive without having an accident when you're upset or overjoyed or happy or tired or don't do it, but sometimes hungover, you know, that kind of thing. It's just you don't think about it. Sure. You know, I've always been a big believer as a musician and all of that other stuff that, you know, technique is really, really, really important to get you to the point of final abandon and release. Hmm. Yeah. So if, you know, and I've noticed this definitely when I'm narrating an audiobook, if I if I screw up and I do several times per page, 9 times out of 10 it's because my brain is somehow listening to what I sound like and I'm thinking about that and I'm not effectively driving. Got it. Yeah, no, okay, that that makes a lot of sense. So what I'm saying is sit back Crack open a soda or something like that. Turn the radio up really loud. Put one hand on the wheel, slouch, you know, and just get there. Right. Don't think about driving. Think about getting there. Okay, cool. No, that's a, that's a great, uh, great analogy. And here's some more metaphors. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, actually, it kind of leads into taking a quick look at a piece of text and talking a little bit about your process. You had mentioned it was a play by John Webster. Yes. It's called The White Devil, John Webster. Uh, he's uh, one of the playwrights that came after Shakespeare, what's called Jacobean playwriting, which is a real different style than, you know, Shakespeare 
I find in every one of Shakespeare's plays, at some point, either it's the overarching theme or sometimes it's just in a moment, there's this concept of like weighing mercy versus justice. There's the fallibility of humanity and what is that which connects us to the eternal? You know, what, uh, uh, you know, there's all of these like, um, Jacobean theater is not that. It's real sensual. It's real bloody. It's very, you know, it, it's, uh, it's fascinating as an answer to what came before. Hmm. And yet, you know, the linguistic constraints are still there. The poetic device is still there. And, and the, you know, the language still flows in that way. It's just the subject matter is oftentimes a lot more brutal and kind of, um, it's just darker. It's just, it's just harsher in a lot of ways than Shakespeare is. Okay. Cool. Um, I mean, a crude analogy would be like, you know, Shakespeare is talking about the heart and the soul. Jacobean theater is talking a lot about tits. <laughs> so, you know, Got it. terrible analogy, but you know, <laughs> kind of like that. All right, cool. So, so you have this uh, speech by it's Francisco. Francisco's the character and essentially what's going on um, without going into the, you know, the whole like story of it or whatever, there's um, this issue with the, the main sort of woman in the show, a woman named Vittoria, who is incredibly smart and doesn't miss a trick is, is smarter than most of the men around her, much more competent than most of the men around her. And she is brought low by this sort of group of guys who are, you know, trumping up charges against her and hitting her with all kinds of allegations and uh, sound familiar at all. Yeah. Yeah. This speech is basically Francisco is trying to convince Camillo, Vittoria's husband, that it's best that she be scrutinized in this way. You know, it's basically just trying to get the husband on board. Okay. With this challenge. Okay. And appropriately enough, it starts with an analogy. <laughs> Go figure. But yeah, I, I like, I like the speech because of a lot of the imagery in it, but because the imagery in it has very little to do with what exactly is the point of it. Okay. It's a little like, it's a little like the archbishops talking together before Henry V walks in the room. How are we going to convince him to go to war with France? Right. Well, okay. So just to give people a little context, I'll read a few lines so that they can start to, you know, get, get a sense and you can kind of walk us through maybe some of the questions you'd ask yourself or how you'd go into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, Francisco says, an old tale. Upon a time, Phoebus, the god of light, or him we call the sun, would need to be married. The gods gave their consent and Mercury was sent to voice it to the general world. But what a piteous cry there straight arose amongst smiths and felt-makers, brewers and cooks, reapers and butter-women, amongst fishmongers and thousand other trades, which are annoyed by his excessive heat. T'was lamentable. All right, so I'll just kind of pause there. And um, yeah. th that's the, the metaphor you're, you're, you're uh, alluding to. Yeah, I, it is, but it's interesting because there's, you know, what's, what's sort of, you know, said in that. And again, the reason why it seems to be clanging real hard with the news lately is basically it's saying, you know, like Phoebus, the god of light wanted to get married and the god said, that's fine. And Mercury went and announced it to the world, but everybody came and said, no, 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 this is bad for business. Mm. 
this is bad for business. You know, this is, you know, if you do that, it's going to affect me in this very negative way. And it's a great sort of concise. These are all trades that would be affected by the heat and everything. And he's trying to make it as clean as he can for Camillo. Right. To try to convince him, you know. So, I mean, I think the first part of that is pretty straightforward. I don't see, you know, it's kind of an Aesop's fable kind of thing. Right. Do you know what I mean? And I didn't, I didn't scan it, but it, it, so does Jacobian, do they kind of adhere to the iambic pentameter or is it a different? Well, rhythm? there's, there's all kinds of rhetorical devices. There's Lytotis, Spondy, there's Trochaics, there's, you know, okay. it's all of the, it's all of the sort of mathematical textual devices that, was in fashion at the time, sure. you know, for, for playwrights. I mean, we have to remember that what our CGI is now was language for them. Yeah. You know, oh my God, did you see what he did with that rhetorical device is literally the same as dude, when that dinosaur came out of the wall, it's the same thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You didn't go see a play. You went to hear a play, which is why it's called an auditorium. Right. Not a visitorium, you know. It was it was so much about sound and about language. So yeah, they definitely stayed with that. Okay, cool. Um, so, are there any uh, any other items or you know things that pop up for you in this speech that you want to kind of highlight in terms of you know things that stand out for you or, or ways you'd you'd get into it a little bit deeper? Well, this is all leading into the argument. This is the parable prior to the to the actual lesson. Upon a time, Phoebus, the god of light, or him we call the sun, would need to be married. Gods gave their consent. Mercury was sent to voice it to the general world. But what a piteous cry there straight arose amongst smiths and felt makers, brewers and cooks, reapers and butter women, amongst fishmongers and thousand other trades which are annoyed by his excessive heat. Twas lamentable. They came to Jupiter all in a sweat and do forbid the bands. A great fat cook was made their speaker who entreats of Jove that Phoebus might be gelded. For if now, when there was but one son, so many men were like to perish by his violent heat, what should they do if he were married and should beget more, and those children make fireworks like their father? So say I. Only I apply it to your wife. Her issue, should not providence prevent it, would make both nature, time, and man repent it. It's interesting. It's like she cannot be allowed to breed, but he never actually says why. Right. Do you know? It's not, I mean, she's not going to burn the earth like Phoebus would if suddenly we were faced with, you know, three or four sons. So what the hell is Francisco actually doing here? I mean, it's a flimsy argument if you really look at it that way. Camillo's jealous. He's worried. You know, there's all of this stuff. I mean, they're just, it's, it's this very, very subtle attack. This is a recurring theme in, uh, in the white devil. It's very entertaining as well. There's a scene where one of the guys, uh, they've, they've given him a poisoned helmet. They've treated the inside of his war helmet with poison that will kill him. Oh, wow. Uh, and then so he comes in and he's in agony and he's on the bed and they bring in two priests to hear his final confession and to grant him absolution and everybody leaves except for the two priests and Bracciano, the character who's poisoned in the bed. And it turns out that the priests are actually these two guys in disguise who know him really well. 
and do everything they can to make him despair before he dies because that will ensure he goes to hell rather than heaven. Wow. So, you know, it's a lot of this like sort of subtle Machiavellian, if you will, you know, machinations uh, around it. Right. This bit of this bit of text I like because it, it's such a question mark. There's this, you know, wonderful illustrative parable. It's pretty clear. It's pretty easy to understand. The guy, you know, the guy who makes cheese goes to the gods and says, if there's two sons, my cheese will all melt. There's nothing, you know, come on. Right. You can't do this. I'm not going to be able to live. I'll die. Never mind the fact that we're going to be burned. It's going to be terrible for the environment and everything. I'm not going to be able to make any money. But literally what he's saying in this thing is this brilliant story about the sun and the world. And it's this great fable and the reapers and butter women and all of that. And that's why you shouldn't let your wife fuck. Right. What? Do you know? <laughs> which which also makes it quite a timely piece that, you know, you Well, have, it you certainly have, does. Yeah, it's you certainly, have, you know. Yeah, you have people making arguments that it's like, well, well, wait a second. That doesn't track. Oh, no, no, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They make these like they make these incredibly impassioned speeches, but if you actually stand outside and listen to it, you're like, "What? <laughs> I don't have enough breadcrumbs to get home. This makes no sense." Yeah. Um, going back to the Anita Hill thing, I remember when Senator Orrin Hatch uh-huh. quoted Shakespeare to Anita Hill, he who steals my goods steals my trash, but he who steals my reputation. And it was this big sweeping gesture and all the conservatives were like, yeah, that's great. Until somebody went, you know, that's Yago's speech, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm reminded constantly, certainly with current events and and even, you know, with a play like The White Devil, um, Tullus Aphidius in the play Coriolanus has right. such a great uh, speech, you know, when he feels like Coriolanus is starting to get out of hand and all of that. And there's that line, so our virtues lie in the interpretation of the time. Hmm. You know, it's a lot about jealousy. It's like, why is he a hero and I'm not? Right. You know, and, and all of that. It's, um, it's fascinating. Nothing really changes, does it? Right. You know? Yeah. There's, I think there's an incredible amount of comedy, depending on how you play this. And if you wanted to, you could certainly mine the comedy, um, sure. out of this speech. You know, there's this huge, wonderful fable and everything. And, you know, so say I, only I apply it to your wife. Wait, what? Yeah. You know, yeah. and then there's no further argument. There's just a couplet at the end. Like that's going to be enough. Interesting. Yeah. No, and and the point you made about you know the the virtues and interpretation, it, right? It's I mean often they kind of say the the winners write the history and and that kind of thing. Well, yes. Um, but yeah, it is it is very interesting to like kind of think about Shakespeare having that same knowing about that same concept and and we're still seeing it 400 plus years yeah depressingly nothing really changes but this is why (laughs) i'm sorry you can make a really solid case for doing classical theater in 2018 america right Right. um but the trick is you know just just deliver the damn mail the you know people are smart they'll get it yeah um how many times have you sat and watched some speech given by a politician lately and thought, how on earth are these people actually accepting this or believing it? Why is no one rushing the stage? Why aren't there pitchforks? What, does nobody see the madness of this? Right. 
and nobody really does. Go back and look at some of these, uh, some of these early plays. Yeah. Go back and have a look at, you know, the white devil. Go back and have a look at, uh, measure for measure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all there. Nothing changes. The clothes do and maybe the way we arrange words, but it's all there. Yeah. Well, listen, Ray, I know you have a, a stack of audiobooks uh, to work on. I was just wondering, do you, do. <laughs> do you happen to have a few more minutes just for some more kind of shorter rapid fire questions? Sure. Okay, yeah. cool. I'll, I'll keep my answers short and without metaphor. All right. Well, you, you can I'll go try. on, you, you can go on as long as you want, but I'll keep the questions short at least. That's very kind. Thank um, you know, one thing, uh, knowing you uh, a little bit personally, you, you seem to be someone, and uh, hopefully I'm not projecting too much, but someone who is very, um, pro-union and pro-veteran and pro-work yes. kind of guy. Yeah. And uh, I was yeah, just curious, so. was this instilled when you were young or did it develop over time? I think it developed more over time. I grew up in a factory town mm-hmm. and I always had a bit of a problem with, you know, I, I mean, when I was growing up, there was all the problems with, uh, uh, Japanese cars were starting to hit the market. It was adversely affecting people in the town that I lived in. And I remember once there was a, you know, story that somebody had parked a Toyota in the parking lot of the UAW, which is the United Auto Workers Union oh, okay. in front of their union hall. And, uh, union members came out and turned the car over. And I always thought that was really excessive and really ridiculous. And, yada, yada, yada. and you know, when you're young, you don't maybe necessarily think as broadly as, you, you know, maybe you should. That's right. what getting older ostensibly does for you is a bit of perspective. Um, it's real possible, I think, to respect and honor a veteran and be completely philosophically opposed to why they're a veteran. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not interchangeable. This is a person who has done something that, thank God, you will never have to do. They are worthy of your respect. End of. I'm talking about military veterans. Sure. I have a great deal of respect for people like that. People who, who will do something that <sighs> I'm an actor for God's sakes. Right. You know, these are people who actually work for a living. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Get shot at yeah. and do heavy physical things. So yeah, I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. Right. You know, union people, um, that's, that's a whole other kettle of fish. We could sit here for another hour talking about that <laughs> and what's happened in this country. But yeah. anyway. Okay. Go on. All right. Well, um, as someone that became better read at you during your years at OSF and now you're doing, uh, performing a lot through audiobooks, I'm curious, mm-hmm. what are one or, or, or a couple of books that you feel made an impact on you? Um, one of my favorite books is by my favorite author, Umberto Eco. Um, it's a book called Foucault's Pendulum. Mm-hmm. And if you ask me why I like it, I don't know that I could give you an answer, but it had a tremendous impact. It's one of my favorites, and I reread it constantly. There's a list of books that I could say were pivotal sure. in my life. Um, and hopefully there will be some more tomorrow. To me, the most important thing is reading for everybody, anybody. Read. There's no excuse not to. If you want to be an actor, you have absolutely no excuse for not reading as voraciously as you possibly can. I remember backstage with you one time and you had me in stitches because you, we were talking about this very point and you said a lot of times you'll, yeah. you'll ask actors, well, what was the last book you read? Well, the year of the king yeah. or, or, you know, year of uh, the king, Anthony Shear. Yeah. And it's like, dude, can you jack off someplace else, please? This is a public place. 
you know. I, I, well, and just that there's so much more out there to to learn to understand. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you, your job is to hold the mirror up to reality, which means you better have a, as good a grasp on as broad a spectrum of reality as you possibly can if you intend to be effective as an actor. Um, the sort of clinical. This is the way they did it at the RSC. No, I'm not saying don't read those books. By God, yes, absolutely do. But what else have you read? Right. What else has affected you? What other, what music matters to you? You know, what, uh, tell me something other than the theater that is vital for you. Right. Because I guarantee you, the more you can enumerate, the better you are as an actor. Hmm. One more question. You said earlier that you try to shy away from, uh, from, you know, giving advice or, or, you know, kind of taking that plumber mentality. But if you had to go back and give yourself advice, you know, right out of college or at 25 or something mm-hmm. like that, what would you hope to impart to yourself? Relax. Relax. Nothing is that important. There's stuff that is important that'll come later. Right now, relax, enjoy. Don't stress. Don't trip out. Don't sit there in self-doubt and meditate on all the ways in which you could succeed or fail. Live your life. Um, nothing is as monumental as it seems. Uh, go back and listen to Bob Dylan's song, My Back Pages. I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. Uh, that age, you know everything. Your body is still made of rubber and magic. You can have empirical deconstructionist views on absolutely everything, and very few of your friends will actually contradict you. It, it, nothing needs to be that important. You can enjoy a lot more. You can laugh a lot more. Um, work a little harder on a couple of things. Just, you know, talking to me personally as a young dude, right. work a little harder on a couple of things you need to do, and for God's sakes, do some fucking sit-ups. <laughs> That's about it. Awesome. Uh, Ray, this has been really wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a great chat. Oh, you're welcome, man. A pleasure. Thank you. Hey, guys. Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe so you don't miss anything ahead. Be sure to visit WorkingActorsJourney.com for additional info and links for items mentioned in today's episode, as well as all the episodes. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. All the links are on our site and in the episode notes. Become a premium member and enjoy additional benefits and perks of the show, starting at just $2 per month. Head over to WorkingActorsJourney.com slash premium to join the Working Actors community. And don't forget to claim your free audiobook at WorkingActorsJourney.com slash audible. Thanks again to today's guest and to everyone that makes these episodes possible. And a special thanks to you for listening. I'm Nathan Agan, and enjoy the journey.